just thank for this day. We thank for the opportunity to come together and to study the book of Revelation and see where you'd have us to see from that and and just to look at what you've declared the, the future to be and to help us to see that. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to finish verse 4, which we didn't finish last, last time. So we're going to read a little bit, and then we'll go back and discuss. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God his, his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's, we're going to stop there because I'm not sure we're going to get too much further than verse 4. Uh, okay, so verse 4 we talked about as he's writing to the churches of Asia and we, def- we brought out that when they're talking about Asia we would call it the Middle East actually is what we would call it. Uh, or Asia Minor as it was called in the Middle Ages. And when they refer to Asia, they're talking everything from the Middle East and Turkey all the way through to what we would call Asia today. So he's writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he says, grace unto you. We talked about grace. And then he says, and peace. And I, I just want us to consider peace. Peace is probably the greatest gift that God gives us. That 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 uh, tranquil state where we're not worried about the future. We're not worried about basically anything because God's in control. And the peace that passes understanding that God gives us is the greatest, the greatest of our gifts as far as I'm concerned because I don't have to worry about anything. Now, Peter says, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. And we, and sometimes that's hard for us to cast all our cares on him. Sometimes our cares get so heavy that we somehow think that we've got to bear them and God's just saying, cast them on him. But he's saying, and he's saying, grace and peace. And that is a wonderful gift for us that he, he says that. And then he says, from him which is, and which was, and which is to come. And he's basically talking about the omnipresence of God. Uh, he, he, was, he was, he is, and he will be. And this is a very powerful statement that he's bringing, bringing about. And he's definitely talking about God at this point. Then he says, and the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, if you've ever read this and tried to figure out who the seven spirits are, you're in for quite a study because nobody knows. Okay? Nobody knows. There's all kinds of speculation on this. There's some who, who want to say it's the, the angels before the throne, the seven chief angels. And the way they come up with this is mostly from extra-biblical sources uh, because the extra-biblical sources talk a lot about seven major angels. The book of Enoch talks about seven angels and how to have power over the seven mighty angels. Uh, uh, The Jewish uh, extra-biblical literature talks about seven mighty angels. All right. Uh, The only problem with that is if you want to go that way, usually that will lead people into worshiping angels. Uh, And that's a big problem. And that's a real concern. And I don't think God would elevate any angels to the place where he's saying, pay attention to these angels. I don't. I, I personally can't accept that, but I throw it out to you. That is one of the uh, answers. Another answer they will give is that they use seven as a symbolic number, and seven means per- perfection or completion, and so that it would be the seven, the, the complete spirit, and they would reference that to be in the Holy Spirit. 
okay? Uh, so we just want to throw these out. Uh, I personally believe that it's a picture of the Trinity, God on the throne, and this is, this is where we're going to, where I, reason I believe this is, when Moses was told to build the tabernacle, God told him to be very careful how he built it and follow the instructions exactly how big the things were and where they were to be placed. And the reason being, in my opinion, and many other theologians, is that the temple was a representation of the throne room of God. God sitting on the mercy seat above the law with the propitiation or mercy seat between him and the law. Jesus in the holy place as the showbread, the bread of life, and the Holy Spirit in the menorah and the light in the, in the holy place. The menorah, as you know, has seven bowls and seven candlesticks, which would have been in the menorah's main symbology is that it's supposed to be the light of the light of God to the world. Now, the Jews kind of forgot about it, the world part, and kept it all to themselves, but God was always meaning that they were supposed to. So this is my thinking of what this is about, that it is the throne room of, of heaven, God sitting on the throne, the mercy seat, Jesus there. And then the last piece of furniture in the holy place was the altar of incense. And those who have been in with the Exodus in Leviticus class, that's, that represents the prayers of, of the saints. Uh, over in verse 20 in chapter 1, where it mentions it talks about the seven stars and the seven golden lines. It says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Messengers or sent ones when we get that there. Not. No, because that one literally refers to the, the pastors of those churches, the overseers of those churches, the ones sent to those churches. But we'll get to there, yeah. Uh, because that's part of how we understand some of this stuff. And if, if you look at the very last verse, that's where it tells us that he's talking about the, the ones that are sent to those churches. But in this case, I really believe that this is showing us a picture. John is in the presence of God in the throne room of heaven. He's seeing the real mercy seat that Jesus had to bring his blood to, to for the sins of the people, to cover the cover the, the mercy seat. He's the showbread. The Holy Spirit is there. Uh, because the menorah has, each one of the candles on the menorah actually have a name, and they represent something. And those names are loving kindness, contained strength, beauty and mercy, eternal victory, glory, foundationally strong, uh, foundational strength and kingdom, okay, which are the way the Holy Spirit works in this world. So I, that is my opinion. For what it's worth, that's what I believe is that he's looking into the throne room of heaven and he's seeing the Trinity before him. And he's describing them in a very, very strong way. And he would have been very much aware of the menorah and the names of the names and that it is the light of the world and that is the Holy Spirit's job is to come into this world and bring people to the conviction of God and shed light upon their life. So for what that's worth, that's what I believe. So you can, but I give you the other options uh, that on, on there. Uh, there are many that also believe, and I did for many years, that this is referring to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And we'll give that to you as well because I believed it for a long time and it still has, resonates a little bit. What chapter and verse? Chapter 11. We'll start at verse 1. It's actually 2 that we're going to look at. 
And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay? If you count those, people will say it only says spirit four times, and that's the biggest complaint about it. But if you think about this in, in a Jewish writing situation, they use parallelism a lot to say this and this, or this or this, you know. And so if you use it as a poetic license, a, a poetic area, there's seven gifts or seven spirits that are represented there. Because there's two pair, there's three pairs. Right? And if you and I have no problem with that. That doesn't that doesn't really bother me. The opposition against that will say, well, only say spirit, for, you know, four times and not seven, uh, and and they're right. But in parallelism, it would be the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding, which is part of wisdom. And so it, it can go either way because with, you can't have wisdom without understanding. So it could very well be that that's all just one. So uh, you know, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. So. Those are your basically your four choices out there, you know. Huh? I like that one. I like that one. I it, all through this Bible, I've got it marked that that, but it was four. But as I've researched, I I kind of got the idea that it's the the actual throne room of heaven with the menorah and everything being represented there. So uh, I would not argue with anybody that wanted to go with Isaiah eleven two because, like I said, for years I was on that one, and this new idea of being the throne room of heaven is something that God showed me last night and I've not read it any, but anywhere at all. It was just something that was thrown out to me and I did a, about a two hour study on the menorah to find out more about the menorah and what it means and what it means to the Jews and what it symbolizes beyond just Hanukkah. Um, so that is, I throw these out for you because it's, there is no answer. There, you cannot get dogmatic on this. If you find somebody who's going to be really dogmatic about this, they're probably not worth listening to because there's no there's no way they can prove any. And believe me, during as I've researched this at times, I've come across some people that are so dogmatic. They go, it's got to mean this, and and here's why, and you know. And I look at it, and I'm going, well, you haven't proved your case, so you know. And there's going to be times we're going to be doing this. We're going to just say, here's here's the ideas, here's here's what I believe, and and you go research what you want on that. So and and no matter what it is, it's really not that important as to what the spirits now if it's angels I'm, I have a little problem with that idea of elevating angels to that high because we are above angels and but they are the ministering spirits of God so but why would he pick seven out of his however many angels he's got up there it's, so and then it says from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead the prince of, of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. It says of Jesus, the faithful witness, the one who's giving store, you know, information that is uh, veracity, it's true. Uh, he came to this earth and, 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 and fulfilled all the law. And it says he's the first begotten of the dead. And this is a very important thing for us. He is the first fruit of resurrection if he hadn't resurrected we would have no hope of resurrection but because he is resurrected we have the hope and the the knowledge that we are going to be resurrected and 
this is this is the other part about this being the throne room of heaven ideas that sevens abound in the scriptures okay they abound all over the place Isaiah 11:2 I believe is a seven seven picture there's seven festival feasts of the Jews that are out there and they're all pictures of Jesus which we've been going over in in uh, Exodus and Leviticus and will again when we get to Numbers and Deuteronomy go over them all again but four of the feasts have already been fulfilled in Jesus's first coming okay uh, the Passover the, res the, the first fruits or resurrection Pentecost the, the power in the, uh, the, of the church and uh, unleavened bread okay you've got four feasts that have already occurred they were the, the what's called the spring feast and we have three feasts yet to be, be fulfilled and that is uh, trumpets Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah is is uh, the repentance one trumpets Rosh Hashanah or, or repentance day of repentance Trumpets. Trumpets twice. Did I say trumpets twice? Yeah, you said trumpets first. Tabernacles. Who's? Okay, right? No, I don't remember the order, so yeah, I'd have to look it up. I've got it written down. Uh, all right, let's get to you in order. I will fill it out in my notes. I keep, I keep that in my notes. First fruits, first. Or no, no, no. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost. Passover is the day that the lamb is slain. The time between Passover and the first Sunday is unleavened bread. They're not allowed to eat any leaven during that period of time. And then first fruits is represents the resurrection of Jesus, the, the growing. And then there's Pentecost where they where they hold the bread to to him and and uh, it was the birth of the of the, the tabernacle is established there, but it's also the birth of the church. Uh, the fall ones will be trumpets, which proclaims liberty, and many people believe that that's going to be related to Jesus taking his, his bride. Atonement, the day of confession and repentance, Rosh Hashanah, uh, the return of Je representing the return of Jesus as as the King, and tabernacles, which you, commemorates their wandering in the wilderness, which will also be the millennial kingdom, while they're waiting for the new heaven and new earth. So those are the three feasts that are yet to be fulfilled. Seven feasts in all. So there's all kinds of sevens out there that God has, okay? And seven is a number that is, does mean completion. And when you see seven, you want to kind of say, okay, why seven? Usually because he's bringing out the idea of it is complete, it's finished. And that's why he's talking to seven churches. The complete, complete list of, of churches is not, it's not a complete list of churches, but it's a complete number of churches that he's given us. And he's showing us all the different stages of the church. All right. So we look at this. He says, Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. He was the first fruits celebration. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. And this is his position. Jesus's position will be as king of this world. It'll be during the millennial kingdom that he will rule. And this is why the disciples had such a problem and everybody else had a problem with him. If he was Messiah, he was supposed to deliver them for Rome and start the kingdom. They did not understand that there was going to be this long gap between the 
69th year of, of Daniel to the 70th year of uh, the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, and there's this huge long gap that we have, and God is not done with Israel yet. He's going to come back as their Messiah and as their ruler and their king and their protector. But when they rejected him as their Messiah at that time and crucified him for it, which was, in one sense, they were doing their job as priests to the world. They sacrificed the Passover lamb, just as the priests were supposed to do. And the blood was shed and, and death was able to be canceled for those who accept Christ. So we've got all of this going on. And he says that he's going to be the king. And it says, unto him that loved us. The love of God, and it never, I, I'm never always amazed at the love of God. And I've said this before, just the fact that he created man, knowing that we were going to sin, knowing that Jesus was going to have to die, but there's love. There's love. Knowing that many were going to reject him. And then that, to me, I just can't fathom how he would do that, knowing that, that many, and that's what it says, many there, you know, that it w narrow is the way that leads to life and broad the path that leads to death and many will go that way and it's hard to understand why God would do this for the few the few and yet he did he created man, he sent Jesus to die for the few and it's hard to think of that love it's hard to even imagine it, at least for me if anybody else can ever explain why that makes sense, I'd love to hear them explain how that can make sense to them but it makes no sense to me. It's, I don't think it's something that I would do, but it does show his love. It does show that he has a love that says, I'm going to do this. And, but it also, you know the broken heart of God when many will choose to turn away from him. Now, how do we as parents feel when we watch some of our kids make bad decisions and or completely walk away from God and know that they're going to go through hard times because of those decisions? Or somebody else in our family that we look at and say, look at their decisions they're going to make. And yet God does this, and he loves us. And John in, in 1 John says, we love him because he first loved us. Now, we would not make a decision for God if we didn't feel his love in the first place. Because our flesh would have said, there's no, no way I'm going to bow down to this, to this. And yet God says, I love you. And then it goes on to says, and Jesus has washed us from our sins in his own blood. His blood. His blood covers our sins. And we need to really fully comprehend that, that when he has died on that cross, he put sin under the blood. And I've said this over and over and over again. The only reason that people are going to go to hell is because they reject Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. They reject him. He paid for the sin and they're going to go, well, I don't accept it. And they're going to say, fine, then you get what you deserve. The only reason we go to heaven is because we've accepted Jesus Christ. It's nothing that I have done, nothing that I do, nothing that, that I can do that gets me into heaven. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ and saying, yes, I accept that. And I just think it's so wonderful and grateful that we're keep saying he still forgives us no matter how many times. And I'm sad when I do sin, but then I ask for forgiveness. But like, why can I not? It would be so nice if all we could, if we could get to the place where we don't yeah. sin anymore. 
And it gets easier to not sin, but God reveals other sins that we have in our life. We're not doing the old sins, but then all of a sudden he says, well, now you've got this whole new set of sins to deal with. You know, It's good that you got rid of those ones, but let's now look at this new set. And the, and the hard part about that is he's going to keep doing that to us. And what I think is so wonderful, when you really turn into Christ and you ask for forgiveness, you recognize it more after you sin. Like before, you just thought that was just, you know... And then you start realizing more and more what sin is. Yeah. And that's because we get closer to God and we start thinking more like Him. And the more we start drawing close to Him, the more we start thinking like Him, the more we start realizing what sin is. And how, how harsh it is when we see it. Because we're starting to get there. We're starting to think more like Him and saying, Oh, how can I do that? How could I have done that? How, how could they do that? I just don't understand, you know. But then we think about how we used to do the same thing. And how, when, since me, since I'm reading it more like, whenever something comes up, I think like, no temptation has saved me except coming to man. I'm thinking now like, okay, before I never thought of it. And that's the importance, and this is why we want to memorize God's word. We want to think about his word because... That's the only thing that will keep us from sin is His Word. And that's how it changes our thinking is His Word. Uh, being around people that think like that and starting to say, oh, wow, I, that person really knows God and look what they're doing. And you kind of start patterning your life a little bit after the, the good that they're doing just because you see God in them. You know, hopefully you're not following that person because they're going you know, to get you where you don't want to be. But you want to follow God in them and say, that's a good example. If you want to learn how to be a prayer warrior, you find somebody who is a prayer warrior and you, and you start praying with them. You get together once a week or twice a week and you, I'd just like to pray with you. I want to, I want to learn how to pray. You want to find somebody that is good with evangelism you, and you want to try to develop evangelism. Go with somebody who, who's a good evangelist and, and listen to them, how they interact with people and talk with people. Yeah. Whatever it is that you think that you want to develop that God has shown you, find somebody that's good at it and have That's them help. One good thing, my friends that were up here, well, this is so cool. Last night and today, I've been, like, I pray, and I, I'm saying, like, how he says, you know, and I'm doing it because I keep praying. I want to learn how to pray better. I want to learn how to pray, not like a little kid. You know? I want to learn, really. And that's learning from others. Yeah. And I'm learning, and I thank him so much, you know. And it's funny because the channel that I listen to has mostly Calvary Chapel pastors on, and, and because I know who their, their head pastor was before he died, and I'd listened to him for years, I hear him through them because he's the one that taught them how to study and how to preach. And you'll see this happen. If somebody grows up under a particular teacher, you'll hear that those words of that teacher, their mannerisms, what they believe. No, that was Chuck Smith. It was their, their. McGee's uh, good. McGee, yeah, he's, he, I like him. So and McGee's good. I mean, uh, he's uh, Vernon J. Vernon McGee was a very good teacher, and and uh, it's funny when I listen to him because I've listened to him for so long. That some of what I believe is actually from him, but I didn't realize that that he's the one that said it and got stuck in my mind. You know, I'm thinking, I, you know, I'm thinking somehow I don't know where I learned it, but I, you know, maybe it's from me. And then I listen to him on the radio and I'm going, oh, well, that's where I got that from. You know, it's, no, I think he's so, Get on the Bible bus. But uh, it's so important that his blood washes away our sin. 
And then when we accept him, he clothes us in his righteousness, and God says we're perfect, even though we're not, and says you are perfect, you are righteous. He justifies us and says we're perfect, and then he spends our entire life sanctifying us. So this is what the power of the blood is all about. And this is why I love singing about the blood of Jesus, because it is so powerful. It is, the, it is the power of how we, how we come to him. It is the power of our forgiveness. It is the power that God says, your sins have been paid for. Sin has been paid for. And this is why when people get into saying, I've got to do enough good things to get into heaven, that's why it's so awful. The price that Jesus paid for our sin was horrendous. There's no other way to get there. No amount of good is going to cancel any, any bad, besides the fact that Isaiah 64 tells us that all our righteousness is filthy rags. So all the best I can do when I stand before God, if I was to stand before God in my righteousness, which is how the lost world will stand before him, if they reject Jesus, they're going to stand in before God in their righteousness, which is filthy rags, and he's going to say, depart from me. I love to say it this way. God's got a dress code for it to get into heaven, and it's Jesus Christ. And if it's not his righteousness, he rejects it. No matter how good you think it looks, he says, wrong, wrong, wrong outfit. And it's free. And it was a free, yeah, it, it's free. I'm giving it to you. You know, come. And uh, this goes to the, the story that, if you remember the parable where Jesus said about the man who went to the, the wedding feast and he wasn't clothed right, and, the, and yeah. the and the owner came and said, why aren't you here with the garment I provided? Depart. Because he tried to come in the wrong garment. He didn't try to come in righteousness of Christ. So it is very critical, and this is why it's so important that we get, and when we talk about the gospel, that we let them know it's all about Jesus' blood. That's the gospel. Simple gospel, we're sinners deserving punishment, and Jesus paid for that. And all we got to do is take that free gift, and he clothes us in righteousness. And then it says in verse 6, And he has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're made kings and priests. Why? Because of Jesus. Nothing that we've done. He washed us, he washed us in, the, in his blood and he says, now you're, a king, you're kings and priests. He was the firstborn of those and, and we get to follow. We will rule with him through the millennial kingdom and we will rule for him for all of eternity afterwards. Not sure what we'll rule over at that point, but we'll rule over something because he says we're going to rule over it. Possibly the angels or a new world. Who knows what he's going to do. But he has made us. And I love this word make because in, in Greek it is an aorist active indicative, which means it happened in the past and goes on forever. Active means that God did it to us, and indicative means that it's a fact. Okay, so when Paul or when John is saying this, he says, and, and by the way, it's already happened that he's made you kings and priests. If we truly understood the power that we have with God, even in this world, it would be an amazing, amazing thing. We limit God in so many ways, and it doesn't mean to get like many Pentecostals where they demand that God do this or demand that God does this, but we have power on this earth that we don't, we're not even aware of in the spiritual realm. And we can 
mimic God in so many ways and the blessings that God has for us just because we're not recognizing that it is, uh, the victory's already been won. And this is what grace is all about. Grace, and we gave you the acronym last week and other times, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And it's a good, it's a good acronym. It, it, it's, it, to me, it's a little weak, but it, does, it tells us what it is. We get everything of, everything of God because of what Jesus did. Everything. Everything that he, that he has in heaven as the Son of God, we have. Because God has adopted us as his children. And adoption puts us co-equal with Jesus as far as all the riches of heaven. And God is saying, this is the glory that you have. This is the glory. And, it's for, and, and then you look at it, why? He says, unto God and his Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. All that he's doing for us is for his glory. Now what that means, I have no idea, because he's got all the glory he needs, and yet somehow his dealing with us brings him more glory. Somebody who has all the glory he needs gets more glory. <laughs> you know, it's, un, it's unfathomable to us, you know, that somebody that doesn't have a need is getting more and has everything gets more. Especially from us. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's because of what he's doing for us. And he's being glorified by, by being so merciful to us. He's drawn more glory upon himself. And this is why we think about what he does for us, that we need to be able to think about how we should deal with others. If God is going to deal with us who deserve nothing but punishment from him, and he, and he deals with grace and mercy with us, how could we not do anything, how could we do anything less to those around us that don't deserve anything? And so often we'll, and I'll think of myself, well, they don't deserve it. I'm not going to be nice to them because they don't deserve it. Well, that's true. They don't deserve it. But I also didn't deserve God loving me and, and being kind to me. And I'm to be a reflection of Christ to this world. And this is where it becomes a very critical state for us. Are we going to be like Christ to the world as he was to us? I just keep thinking like how we and we're not but he obviously thought we were yeah and but that's why it's so amazing I mean there's a lot of other bad things happening but how he forgave you no matter what mm -hmm. And it is such an amazing grace. I mean, because you're right. When we look at ourselves, we're not worth it. And yet God, for some reason, some unfathomable reason said, I'm going to create you and I, and, I put, and I have some value in you. I have value in you. Otherwise, he wouldn't have created us. If he didn't see some valuable, something valuable coming out of it, there's no way he would have put himself through separating himself from himself. And this is this is the thing that really just unfath is unfathomable to me. The being who has been together for all of eternity separates himself for a period of time for us. For us. And that has to have been the greatest pain. I mean, the nails were painful. The taking on the sin was painful. But to be separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit that he had been with for all of eternity. 
know, all of eternity, and he splits himself from himself. That would be like us trying to take a part of our body off and saying, okay, I'm going to care so much, I'm going to cut my arm off, you know, and cause all that pain because it's going to help somebody. And it just, no. it's just unfathomable. No. But, but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 he yeah, split yeah. himself apart for a period of whatever length of time. And, and granted, in all of the scope of eternity, it was not even a twinkling of an eye that they were separated, but still the pain of being separated from the person that you have an intimate relationship with. Like you said, amazing grace. Amazing grace. And the closest we could probably ever think about this would be your very first boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, and that very first one that was so hard to get over because you fell so hard for that person. You know, or a long-term marriage where, where they've gotten to know each other really well and, and and love each other, and truly love each other to the place where that when they're that they couldn't fathom being separated. You know, and this is what God did for us. You know, it's just to me, it's one of those things. What value is He seeing in us? You know, like, no, that's, what that's you know, what, what value? And He tells us that we're not worth it, that we're not worth it, that that in and of ourselves we're not worth it. But there has to be something that He sees of, of value. Otherwise, he would. I can't fathom that he could have, would have done it if there was no value in what he did. And yet, there's something out there, and we'll never know what it is until we, at best, when we get to heaven. And even then, we may not understand it, because there's no promise in the scriptures that says we're going to understand everything that God knows. And a matter of fact, I don't believe that we'll know everything that God knows, because if we did, we'd be God. Yeah. There will always be things that God knows that we don't know because he's always going to be God. And we're always not going to be God. So there's always going to be things he knows that we don't know. And I really believe that we will spend eternity getting to know more about God and trying to fathom what he knows for all of eternity. Because learning is one of the greatest things that we can do. If you stop learning, you die. Literally, you will die. And you can you see it in older people when they... And they stop, they retire, and, and if they will stop doing activities and learning, you will watch them die very quickly. At least die, you know, they might as well be dead because there's just nothing there. Uh, but you watch these older people that are always studying and always learning something new and getting into a new craft. And, you know, they're getting to be 80, 90 years old, and they're still vibrant and saying, I'm learning. I'm, 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 and I really believe that we're going to spend eternity learning because I, to me I think that's one of the most important things that we do on this world is learn and I just can't I, I can't picture heaven without learning because of learning more about God learning and being able to not forget what you learn would be wonderful yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so tiring to forget Especially what you learn older, it's interesting yeah. how a spouse dies soon after Frequently, you know, frequently, yes. It's just, it's it, a lot of that. A lot of that is because a, a real loving marriage is that you become one, and to lose part of that whole is hard to do. Just to change, it's like I just heard on you that Kathy Gifford's husband died. Yeah, but like she said, she she is. Or she, she knows where he's at, and he, um, I forget the other word. It was really, mm -hmm. she knew where he's at, and yeah. she wasn't really grieving. She didn't say it that way, but she knew, like, some people were really 
All right, verse 7. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. And this is talking about the actual second coming of Jesus. Okay, at first he comes. He doesn't come at the rapture. He comes into the and he calls us, and he's not. That is not his coming. Nobody else sees him. All it is is the church is snatched away from this world. Okay, and we talked a little bit about that. I, I am a pre-tribulation person. That he comes, and he, and most of it is because it's. We have the wedding supper of the Lamb, and the Jewish wedding ceremony was a seven-day ceremony. So while we're up there in a ceremony, there'll be seven days, uh, seven days or seven years of tribulation on this earth. And remember, we also said that the tribulation is not punishing. He's not trying to make life miserable for people. In one sense, he is. But his purpose of it is to get them to come to him. He's not just saying, well, you guys have dis been disobedient all this time, so now I'm just going to smack you around for... You know, he's not abusive. He's saying, I'm doing this because I want to draw you to me. And that's the whole purpose of the tribulation period, even though about two-thirds of all the population are going to die during that period of time as we get see the trials coming. The purpose is not just to be mean and kill lots of people. It is to say, here I am. Here's my last opportunity for you to see me come. You, know, you didn't respond to my church and my mercy and my grace, so let me show you what my punish, give you just a taste of what the punishment's going to be and turn to me. Okay, so we want to always remember that. The purpose of the tribulation period is to draw them to God. The second year of that period are literal years. Yes. Yes. And we get that we get that it's a literal year because we look at the seventy weeks of Daniel and the math has been done to show when the decree went out to the return of Israel to when Jesus rode, rode into the triumphant entrance that it was 69 uh, sevens, which off the top of my head I can't remember what that is, but you know, in that many years and almost, to, you know, and they say to the day that Jesus rode in. So 69 of the 70 years of Daniel have already, weeks have passed, and it was weeks of years. And so when we get to the 70th week, it is a literal seven years and then when he as we get in here we'll we'll see that it's two thousand some odd days you know which you know what you and you break it down it says three and a half years and three and a half years so it is definitely very literal which is why we why we know that the uh, rapture cannot happen in a post-tribulation mentality because once the tribulation starts you've got seven years and Jesus says, "No man knows the day that I, you know, of that, of the, of that." So, you know, rapture started seven years. You'd know exactly when the tribulation was, you know, when the rapture was going to happen if it was post, and pretty much the same for mid because it's, you know, we know that the midway is going to be three and a half years. So again, if you have a mid trip position, you're going to say, "Tribulation started three and a half years later. He's going to take us away." Uh, and then there are those who kind of fudge it. You know, well, it just means somewhere in the middle, not necessarily exactly the middle. Uh, but it doesn't fit many other other places. Uh, God does not pour His wrath does not pour wrath upon His 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 people. He always protects them. And the the idea of the Jewish Jewish wedding, you know, doesn't fit with the three and a half year mentality. So there's, you know, uh, can you be absolutely dogmatic about where God? I would say post trip doesn't make any sense. Post-trib actually comes along if you spiritualize all the scriptures and say that they're not literal. Then you come up with a post-trib 
idea of Jesus coming back and go, you know, we come back with him. Mid-trib, I've vacillated for many years between pre and mid, uh, but I'm getting very firm now on a, on a pre-trib position of, and it's because of the preponderance of different scriptures. Uh, if somebody wants to stick at mid-trib, I'm not going to sit there and argue with them because I spent a lot of years bouncing back and forth between the two, and and if it took me that long, I'll let God work on their heart to get them to the right position. But I'm not going to argue with them on that. So, but this st- statement here is Jesus' second coming as king. Behold, he comes in with the clouds, and every eye will behold him. This is what the angels told the disciples when he was lifted up in the clouds, that he will come back just like he left. He's coming back uh, in the clouds. And this will be when he comes back to be the king that everybody's waiting for him to be the ruler, the king of the world. And it says, in, in every eye shall see him, and then it goes, and they also which pierced him. And who pierced him? The Jews. Well, the, the, in one sense, yes, technically, the Romans were the ones that carried it out, but the Jews are the ones that delivered him to him. And if you really want to go to the absolute technicality, we are the ones that, that did it because he died for our sins. But in this case, He's literally talking about the Jewish people because they've rejected him as his Messiah. So we're going to turn to Zechariah chapter 12. It's one of those small books in the Old Testament. And the Minor Prophets, actually one of the biggest of the Minor Prophets. Who? Zechariah. He's he's after uh, Zephaniah. He's after Haggai. And before Malachi, he's the last, he's second to last book of the Old Testament. We're going to be in chapter 12. That's one of those books that's hard to find. Unless you memorized all the books of the Bible. Alright, chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 7. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, and the glory of the house of David, and the glory of the inhabitation of Jerusalem. Do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them. At the day shall as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his own son, and shall be in bitterness for him as the one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. This is the picture of... Jesus returning to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, the Jews' eyes will be opened. What number was that? About? That was chapter 12, yeah. 7 through 10 is what I oh, read. Wait, that's fine. It would be about time. Uh, there have been Jews that have come to Jesus, obviously. They're, they're called completed Jews or Messianic Jews or whatever term you want to use you know, for them. But when Jesus returns in power in power in the clouds to be the ruler at that moment Israel is under attack from the whole world no one is standing with them they talk about a a, um, 
huge army of the east coming in to, to attack them. They're being attacked from the north the, by Gog and Magog. They're being attacked from the east and what we think is because by the size of the army, a million-man army being, being China. And they're being attacked from all directions and it looks like they're going to fall and be destroyed and Jesus shows up. And we're going to read more about it as we get to the end of, end of this. But he is going to show up and kill all their enemies. And that is when you've heard about the blood running, running in Armageddon at, at, at the depth of the horse's uh, chest. You know, there's going to be millions of people just killed instantly. And there'll be blood everywhere. Because God says, I'm defending my people. They're not going to be wiped out. And at that point, they're going to look up and they're going to recognize exactly who it is that's come. And they're going to recognize that this is that crazy man that they, they was killed 2,000 years earlier by their people saying that he was a Messiah and here he is. They're going to recognize that he's the same one. And the picture of him, they're going to see the piercings on his, uh, on his hands. They're going to see the, the, the wounds that he took. And they're going to mourn because of what they went through. So this is just so that we bring this back. Of God's word is all through here. This, the picture of this is all through the scriptures. I've heard people say that as much as 50 to 75% of all the Bible is prophetic. And, and I'm not going to argue with them because there's a lot of prophecy all through the Bible. When you read it, you say, this is a very prophetic book, and which is why we know. And it's not like Nostradamus and all these other guys where they say something that is so in, in unspecific that it could mean anything. You know, it says, they're going to look at him whom they pierced, and they're going to mourn. Yeah. And, it, and this is even before he's pierced. <laughs> that is being said. Okay, so we know half of this has already been fulfilled because he's been pierced. Yeah. He is the son of David. He has already been pierced. The people rejected him. And in the future, when he shows up, it's going to, they're going to see it and recognize it. And the great thing about any prophecy of, in the scriptures is, as far as God's concerned, it's not even prophecy. He is just telling you what has already happened from his perspective. You know, and this is, we, we can't even fathom this. It's, he's outside of time. He dwells outside of time. He, he looks down at time as we look down on this piece of paper and say, oh, there's the beginning. This is what they call the beginning. This is what they call the end. And I want to pick any part of it. And he's all there and he's everywhere. He's everywhere. And, you know, how many times have I said that he's with Adam and Eve? He's, he's at the cross now. He's with us at this moment. And he's already See, that's at the millennial me. kingdom. Because today morning, I I try to do my reading in the morning, but I get sidetracked and get nights out. So I figure, okay, no matter what, I'm going to do my reading first. Get about Facebook, because then I always come back. And I said, because God knows what I'm going to be doing. So I'm hoping I'm going to do this. I did not go on Facebook at all until I did all my reading. And that's good. And I think... Because you're like me. If I get on Facebook, I, I'm in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just... I only go on Facebook about every three months because I know that once I get on Facebook, I'm going to spend time on Facebook. So well, well, I go on Facebook because I have a lot, I have like yeah. a lot of that I have on there. So here we are with Zechariah saying this is going to happen. John is reiterating it. 
John is reiterating that hey, he's coming back, and every and, and those who've pierced him, he knows the story of Zechariah. He knows that he knows that prophecy. And he's saying, here it's come, and the earth and all kindreds, not just the Jews, but all kindred, kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. They're already wailing because of all the bad. You know, we think things bad happen to us now. You know, just think of seven years of constant bombardment from God of judgments. You know, just little things like you know, one, one quarter of all the drinking water becoming undrinkable. Uh, you know, one quarter of all the green herbs and trees disappearing. You know, an earthquake that shakes the mountains so that they fall. That's yeah. going to be a pretty hard earthquake. Yeah. All these things that are going to be out there that God is saying, I want you to know that it's me. And it is not going to be an easy thing to live through. And I am going to be so glad that I'm not going to be here. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be up there having a feast. Yeah. Yeah. Up there in a feast and a wedding, wedding ceremony. Not down here enduring all of that. And then they're going to see who's rescuing them. Now, have you ever talked to somebody and they go, well, I just don't believe Jesus? If they happen to make it through all of that, the one who's going to rescue them is Jesus. The one who's going to deliver them is going to be Jesus. And, they're going to, and every eye, it says every eye will see him. Now, whether that's on camera or literal or whatever, you know, uh, he's showing up in he's showing up in Jerusalem, but you know I can picture because we already have it when when, yeah. when people go to war. There's the cameras showing you the war. Every eye is going to see him because I can guarantee when he when he shows up in the sky, the cameras are going to flip over to him, and then he's going to just kill everybody that's coming against them. Every eye will see him, yeah. and we can picture how that's going to happen. We know that it can happen and will happen. Okay, we're going to look. There's three sets here where God repeats a title for Jesus, and we're going to start looking at the first one here on verse 8. It says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Okay? So this is... Pretty much he's, he's repeating himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega. We would say I am the, the A to the Z. Because this is like in, in Greek, it's the beginning is Alpha, the end is Omega. We, in English, we would say I am the A to the Z. And everything in between is who I am. The beginning and the end, which is and which was and which is to come. He's talking about his omnipresence. And it says the Almighty. You know. This is a statement where he's saying, I am God. Okay? There's nothing before me, nothing after me. I'm, I'm, I fill all of time, and I am the all-powerful one. Yeah. Giving a couple of his attributes right there in one, one quick sentence. See, this may be a dumb question, mm -hmm. but not I always wonder, but how you explain that is so A to Z. I mm -hmm. never thought of it that way. Yeah, it's the Greek, it's the Greek alphabet. Yeah, yeah. It ends alpha and ends with omega. Yeah. So, and then the other other letters in between. So, so it's. I don't understand that. 
So he's saying beginning and end, and it's one of the I am's of Christ. You know, it's an I am, which is also the moment he says I am, he's going back all the way to Exodus, where he says, when Moses says, what shall I tell the people your name is? And he says, I am that I am. And this is why when people will tell you, and there's a lot of different cults and people that will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, there was one time when he said that you are children of, of, your, you know, of the devil, not of Abraham. And they go, well, who are you to know? And he goes, before Abraham was, I am. And what was the result of them? They picked up stones to stone him for, for speaking blasphemy. Okay? They knew very clearly that he was saying, I'm God. Uh, and it's not just the one. It's not just that one spot that, where he says that. There are several places where he very clearly to the people said that I am God. When when he talked to the lame man and told him to pick up his bed, and he's and he, and he got into trouble for picking up his bed, and he goes, well, just to prove that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I said, your sins are forgiven you. And they knew that that was a claim to them that he was saying, I am God, because the only one that's, that's in a position to forgive sins is God. Now, we can forgive people, you know, you know their wrongs to me, but they, we can't forgive them their sins in, in, in totality. That is something only God can do because the scriptures teach us that all sin, everything bad that is done is against God. Okay, and we see that in David when David tells God against you and you only have I sinned and what is he talking about the murder the murder the the the, 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 the adultery you know and all the lies that went along it and, and you know you say well gee you know his family the the woman the, all these people and then he's going no against you and you only have I sinned that because ultimately all sin is against God and we also need to start trying to understand that because when somebody does something bad against us, it's really not against us. It's against God. So that we need to be able to forgive them for what little hurt that we took from them, but it is God who's the one that has been sinned against. And this is why we bring in this whole thing. You know, we need to learn to treat people the way God treats us because of everything is really against him anyway. You know, and this is, and I know it's not easy to do at times, but the more we start thinking in terms of God and the more we start understanding his word, the easier things get. And, I, and I've talked about this. We learn to walk more and more. We get the exercise. We, we, we learn. The more we learn, the easier things is. It's, it was hard to learn to walk, you know, if, you know even though we don't remember usually re- remember learning to walk, but we watch kids and they stand up, they fall down, they stand up, they fall down, they take two steps, they fall down. They, you know. But before we know it, that, that next step between walking and running isn't that difficult. They start running fairly easy. They start jumping fairly easy. But that first steps were hard. And it's the same thing in our spiritual life. When we take those first steps, they're hard. The more we start getting changed, the easier those next steps get to be. And, and we start responding to God. Just as you said, you know, we start responding to God a little easier because we're already starting to see the wickedness of the sin. We're not having to be convinced of how wicked it is. God is just opens our eyes and says, wow, that's a wicked sin. I didn't think of it before. And, you know, and you start changing. Why? Because we're, we're growing up. Each change that we do as grown-ups is a little easier. And not, e- you know, not completely easy, yeah. but it gets easier. 
you know, if I needed to learn how to, you know, I had to learn to use the spoon, and then I learned the fork, and then I used a knife, and then you, then you go to a formal place, and you have to figure out which of the forks and spoons to use, and it's really, you, you, you learn it fairly quick. You don't have to, it's not a huge trial and, you know, trial and error, you just, you learn it. And this is the way our spiritual life is. It gets easier. Will it ever be super easy? Yeah. No, because we're still human, we're still flesh, we still have a sin nature that wants to pile up and say, hey, you don't, you don't, you don't quite know what you're doing and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're leaving me behind and I don't like this. And it will never be perfect, but it will be worked on that God will say it's easier. And each step is easier. Learning to forgive others is easier as we learn to forgive ourselves and we start really starting to see how much God forgives and it makes it easier to start forgiving others. We learn to love. The more love God pours on us, the more we learn to love others. And we're not, learn we're not loving them trying to get them to do what we want or manipulate them. That's what they look at it sometimes because that's what they experience. If somebody's being kind to them, they want something. We're doing it because we're showing God's love and that draws them to God. And yes, I get, you know, I've said this the other day. In one sense, yes, we're trying very much to get them to do something. Yeah. We want them to come to God. Yeah. But if they understood how much it is to their benefit to come to God, it's, it's really not manipulative in, in many ways, but it is. I want them to come to God. I want them to know God. Because once they get to know God, they've got an eternity to get to know Him and an eternity to, to look forward to rather than being judged. We're out of time. So we're going to stop at verse 8. But you're also growing rapidly yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And that's the one thing I love is I watch people in this church that there's people that are growing very quickly and rapidly, and that's the great thing about God's grace. He's the one that does the growing, and if we just will release to Him, you know, rapid growth. When we think we have to do something to earn His his forgiveness, that we have to do something to be, you know, you're not going to grow very fast that way because the flesh goes and battles you 100% at that point. I know, what I love is that I want to learn and I have to, like I said, I have to stop, I have to do this now. Forget about anything that's more important than any of this other stuff that I thought was important. Mm -hmm. Yep. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word and, and just to see what the future as you see it completed. Lord, and you show us what's coming. You show us how much you love us to try to keep us from it. And we ask you, Lord, you, you help us to share the gospel with many around us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.